0: Luke chapter 1 this morning, verses 5 through 25, and the title of the message today is A Miracle Unbelieved, A Miracle Sure. A Miracle Unbelieved, A Miracle Sure. Uh, In the closing chapters of the uh, Old Testament, God speaks to His people In the book of Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, and he tells them that he's going to be sending them a messenger uh, who will prepare the way uh, before him. And then he promises that after that, the Lord will come suddenly to his temple in Malachi chapter 3. And then in Malachi uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament God says, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And it is after this promise is spoken that we have what is called the 400 years of silence from God when no new scriptural revelation was given. Think about how long 400 years is. In 1622, 400 years ago, William Bradford was serving as the governor of the Jamestown settlement here in the New World. And the King James Version of the Bible was just 11 years old. That's how far the Jews of the first century were removed from the last promise that God spoke to his people in their scriptures But in our passage this morning, in Luke chapter 1, after a 400-year period of inspired silence, Luke records for us the moment that God begins to speak and to make good on many Old Testament promises. And when God does speak in our passage today through the angel Gabriel, He's going to quote from the promise of Malachi chapter 4, making the link between the last verses of the Old Testament and these first events in Luke 1 in the chronology of the New Testament as God begins to fulfill his promise to send an Elijah-like man to bring revival to Israel in preparation for the imminent coming. Of Christ. And we're going to see that a righteous old man named Zacharias, a good man, is hearing these glad tidings and he is having a whole lot of trouble believing in the good news that is being revealed to him. In fact, he finds it all too good to be true. But in the end, Zacharias and all of us will discover that It's not too good to be true. God really is that good. And as we look at our passage this morning, the way we'll break down our study of the text is we'll just observe five developments in the true story, in the historical account of the conception of Christ's forerunner, John the Baptist. And we'll look at this today, and then next week we'll pick up where we leave off today because the two stories, the story we'll look at next week is intertwined with what happens uh, today. So this will set us up beautifully to appreciate what we are looking at next Sunday in our Christmas service. Development number one in this amazing true story of the conception of John the Baptist is, Zacharias and Elizabeth are righteous, old, and childless. Zacharias and Elizabeth are righteous, old, and childless. Observe what happens in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. The Herod that is being spoken about Here in verse 5 is Herod the Great, which means that this is not a good time in Israel's history. The wicked Roman Empire is ruling over the known world of this day, and Herod the Great exerts his wicked absolute rule over the people of Israel. As some of you know, Herod did do some good things like beautifying the temple in Jerusalem, but he also did many, many evil things like polluting the land of Israel with many pagan temples that he had built. On top of all of that, in the final years of his reign, he was so paranoid in clutching to his throne that he had a number of his own family members killed in order to protect his throne. And this is the time that we find ourselves in right now here in Luke chapter 1. From certain standpoints, some might have thought that this was the least ideal time for God to do the amazing work that he is about to do, but this is the time that God chooses to do his work, teaching us, guys, that the nations of this world may rage and the kings of the earth may wield their power to wicked ends But nothing can stop the forward movement of God's redemptive purposes in human history. Amen? Let's remember this truth today. Elections that we have in our country matter greatly. The decisions of judges greatly matter. The decision of the three branches of our federal government in recent days to enshrine same-sex marriage into law matters. The passage of Prop 1 that makes abortion a constitutional right here in California matters greatly, but none of those things can stop the redemptive plan of God from moving ever forward toward the climax of the ages. Looking back at our text, we're told in verse 5 that during this time of Herod's reign, there was a man or a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, we're told here in the text that Zacharias was of the division of Abijah, which was one of the 24 divisions of Levites who were officers of the sanctuary of the temple in Jerusalem identified in 1 Chronicles chapter 24 verse 5 and verse 10. These priests would serve in the temple in various capacities on a rotating basis throughout the calendar year. As for the godliness of this couple, we are told that Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God. Part of what this means is that they were believers in God and their faith was reckoned to them as righteousness. And on top of this imputed righteousness, we also learn, look at verse 5, that they were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So they didn't just seek to obey God in some areas, but in all areas. And when they failed, they obeyed the prescriptions in the law to rely upon the sacrifices prescribed in the Old Testament to bring them the covering or the atonement that they needed. Now, God promised in the Old Testament that he would bless those who walked in his ways and obeyed his laws, and one of the blessings that he actually promised to his people was the blessing of children. You can write down the reference Deuteronomy 7.14, where God promised the people of Israel that if they walked in his ways, he says, and I quote, you shall be blessed above all peoples and there shall be no male or female barren among you, unquote. So given promises like this, we would expect Zacharias and Elizabeth being as righteous as they are to have a quiver full of children. Yet look at verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. That expression advanced in years is just a nice biblical way of saying they're old When Elizabeth was younger and barren, there was no doubt a flame of hope that God might open her womb at some point, but as she grew older, that flame no doubt dimmed to a flicker, and then at a certain age, that flicker was extinguished altogether, and we know this because the text says they were both advanced in years, meaning that they had moved on, They had advanced in age beyond their capacity to bear children. And yet, amazingly, even though they are undoubtedly disappointed that God has not given them children over the years, they are still living a righteous life and keeping the commandments of God in his word. They don't have easy answers about why God won't give them children. Every day, they probably see other parents who have a house full of children, and they have to be reminded that God has not answered their prayer for children, yet they are still loving God and walking blamelessly in God's ways. Even now, when they are past the age of childbearing, and they and their minds will never have children. But wonderfully, in our passage today, this elderly couple begins to experience a reversal of fortunes, which brings us to the second development in this true story of the conception of Christ's forerunner. Number two, the angel Gabriel appears to Zacharias while he is serving God. The angel Gabriel appears to Zacharias while he, Zacharias, is serving God. Observe what happens beginning in verse 8. Now, it happened that while he, Zacharias, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. As we saw earlier, Zacharias was of the division of Abijah, which was the eighth division, according to 1 Chronicles 24, verse 10. So twice a year, it would be their turn, the people of this division, it'd be their turn to come to the temple and do their weekly rotation of service. And this was one of their weeks to serve in the temple, and Zacharias was among this group serving in the temple this week. And amid all the duties that the various priests would be engaging in during this week, every day there were two moments when a priest would enter into the holy place of the temple and pour incense on the altar that stood before the 60 feet high curtain that closed off the holy of holies. This pouring of incense would happen before the morning sacrifice and then again in the late afternoon. Every priest considered it a high privilege to be chosen to perform this task of pouring incense on the burning coals of this altar of incense and then to pray before this altar of incense, right before the entrance of the Holy of Holies to pray on behalf of the nation of Israel. In fact, a priest would be given this privilege only once in his lifetime. And then for the rest of his life, he would be considered rich and holy. And amazingly, among the hundreds of priests serving this week in the temple, it was Zacharias who wins the lottery literally, and is chosen by God through that lottery to enter the holy place in the temple for this special task, making this the highest moment of his life of service to the Lord as a priest. According to custom, after the priest would pour incense on the hot coals of the altar of incense, he would then pray to the Lord for the peace of Jerusalem and for the redemption of Israel. And his prayer would, as it were, ascend to God, commingled with the smoke of the incense that was now issuing up from the altar of incense. Zacharias would have been thrilled to be the one chosen by God, by Lot, to do this on this occasion and to represent the people of Israel in prayer before this altar of incense. Again, let's at least pause just a moment to appreciate Zacharias' faithfulness in serving the Lord in the midst of the deep disappointment that has marked his life. Zacharias has lived a long time and God has not given to him and his wife any children Yet here he is showing up for work and serving the Lord faithfully. A lesser man might have given up his faith altogether and decided not to be involved in ministry any longer. Yet here is this elderly man whose lifelong prayer for a child has never been answered. And he is still, as the text says in verse 8, performing his priestly service before God and praying for the nation, the people of Israel. I think we can learn so much from Zacharias' example, even when life does not make sense, even when God doesn't seem to be hearing your prayers. Keep getting out of bed in the morning Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Keep trusting God and keep trusting in the fact that God must be up to something bigger that right now may not be visible to you. And keep serving him with whatever it is that he puts before you to do. The truth is that even though Zacharias does not know this yet, God is about to meet him in his path of faithful service and blow him away with the best news that Zacharias has ever heard in his whole life. And God is about to give him the most staggering assignment that he has ever received. And it just may be that God has a special appointment with you inside of those moments of your faithful service to him." As for Zacharias, he is serving the Lord and he's pouring the incense on the altar in the holy place and then praying for the redemption of Israel. And while he's doing this inside the holy place, verse 10 says, "...and the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And they would have been bowed to the ground with their hands extended forward, as soon as they saw the smoke of the incense rising from the altar into the sky. And it is at this exact moment that something truly amazing happens. Look at verse 10. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Now, we're going to learn later that this angel's name is Gabriel, but for now, all we're told is that he is an angel of the Lord. And observe how Zacharias responds in verse 12. Zacharias was troubled. Literally, Zacharias was shaken when he saw the angel. And the New American Standard says, and fear gripped him. Literally, fear fell upon him. This sort of response is almost universally the response of people in the Bible whenever an angel makes an appearance to them. Fear at the presence of God's angels is the way anyone would respond who has a sensitive conscience and who is aware of the reality of their sin and the holiness of God. Zacharias's initial response is to fear that this angel has come to bring him judgment from God. However, just the opposite is true. Gabriel has showed up on this occasion because he has some glad tidings, some good news to bring to Zacharias. And this brings us to the third development in this historical account of the conception of Christ's forerunner, John the Baptist. Number three... Gabriel tells Zacharias the good news that he will have a son who fulfills prophecy. Gabriel tells Zacharias the good news that he will have a son who fulfills prophecy. Observe what Gabriel says to Zacharias in verse 13. It says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. And literally, this means stop being afraid. Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Zacharias has nothing to fear from Gabriel. Gabriel is here to deliver some really great news, and the first part of the good news to Zacharias is that your petition has been heard keep in mind that Zacharias has just prayed for Israel. He has just prayed for the peace of Jerusalem and the redemption of Israel. So at the very least, Gabriel is telling Zacharias that God has heard the prayer that he has just prayed for the people of Israel. But it also turns out that God will be answering this prayer in a way that answers another prayer that Zacharias used to pray for many decades when he used to ask God to give him and Elizabeth a child in years prior. Observe what Gabriel says in verse 13, your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Gabriel tells Zacharias that when his son is born, he has an assignment, and that is, give him the name John, Yochain, a name which literally means Yahweh is gracious. God wants Zacharias' son to bear this name because the primary message that God wants to convey to Israel through him is that Jehovah or Yahweh is gracious toward sinners. Gabriel continues in verses 14 and 15 saying to Zacharias, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. As to John's greatness, even Jesus will testify in Matthew eleven eleven, and say among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Gabriel also tells Zacharias that John will drink no wine or liquor at any point of his life, which, which speaks of his lifelong consecration to special service for the Lord. You'll be interested to know that in the Old Testament, priests like Zacharias were forbidden to drink any alcoholic beverage while they were on duty in their service in the tabernacle, and we see that in Leviticus chapter ten, verse nine, and this would have applied to Zacharias during his week of service in the temple that he's engaging in right now, but in Gabriel telling Zacharias that his son will never drink wine or liquor. He's basically saying that John's whole life will be a life of service, 52 weeks of the year, every year of his life. And according to Gabriel, John the Baptist will not just be filled with the Spirit, but Filled with the Spirit, even while in his mother's womb. This kind of thing is not said of anyone anywhere else in Scripture, meaning that John the Baptist, the son of Zacharias, will be a most unusual man. And we're going to see next Sunday how God actually has something he wants John to do, even while in his mother's womb. So it's important that he be filled with the Spirit, even in her womb. Imagine hearing someone giving their testimony, and in their testimony, they share how they were filled with the Spirit, even while in the womb of their mother. That's amazing. And then they look at you and say, so what's your story? Like, how do you, how do you compete with that? But that was John's testimony. As for the purpose and the impact of John's ministry, listen to the string of things that Gabriel promises starting in verse 16. Gabriel says to Zacharias, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back To the Lord their God. It is He who will go as a forerunner before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Basically, there are five things that Gabriel is promising that Zacharias' son will grow up and do. First of all, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord, their God. And this kind of language implies very clearly that the people had turned away from God. But John will turn many of them back to God and thus make them ready for the Messiah when he comes. Secondly, he will go as a forerunner ahead. If you read what Gabriel's saying, John will go as a forerunner ahead of the Lord, their God, who is the Messiah, Jesus. John will do this in the spirit and power of Elijah, Gabriel says, which takes our minds back to the prophecy of Malachi 4, verse 5, where God promises to send Elijah before the great day of the Lord. Thirdly, in connection with that, he will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. How precious is this? This was promised in Malachi 4.6, the last verse of the Old Testament. And again, the language here implies that there had been a turning away, a falling away of the hearts of the fathers away from their children. And the promise here is that John's ministry Will have the effect of reestablishing the correct relationship between dads and their children, and thus making them ready for the Messiah. As the commentator William Hendrickson says, and I quote Family life is of the utmost importance for the true prosperity of the nation, the church, and society in general. From a spiritual point of view, the generation gap is often ruinous, and John's ministry will serve to eliminate this gap and bring healing and devoted faithfulness between the parents and their children. Fourthly, Gabriel tells Zacharias that John will turn the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous or the mindset of the righteous, or you could even understand this to the wisdom of the righteous. And fifthly, he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord, for the Messiah, the Lord their God, Messiah, when he comes. So what we have in these verses is an amazing multi-layered promise from an angelic being who is speaking To an old man married to an elderly wife who has a barren womb. In fact, what happens next clearly reveals that this old man, Zacharias, hardly even hears the list of amazing prophecies that Gabriel utters in verses 16 and 17 because he's stuck on and still stumbling over the promise of verse 13 that he and his wife will have a son. Gabriel lost him there. And this brings us to the fourth development in this true story of the conception of Christ's forerunner, John the Baptist. Number four, Gabriel renders Zacharias speechless for not believing his good news. Gabriel renders Zacharias speechless for not believing his good news. Observe what Zacharias does in verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Literally, Zacharias' question is simply, how will I know this? The words for certain are not in the Greek text. Just how will I know this? What Zacharias is really saying to Gabriel is, I've heard what you've said, but I do not believe that it will come true. What else can you give me that will convince me that what you are saying will really come to pass? Now, there's something good in... Zacharias' words and something bad. Zacharias' words here indicate that he wants to believe the promise of the angel, and he's asking for some kind of help in believing. That's a good thing. The bad thing here is that Zacharias simply does not believe the good news that Gabriel has just delivered to him from God, and that it turns out, is a big mistake for which there is no excuse. All Zacharias has to think back on was how God caused Sarah to conceive Isaac in her womb when she was 90 years old. Sarah had more excuse for her unbelief because there was no precedent for the miracle that God did in her But Zechariah had the precedent of Sarah and the precedent of Samson's mother and Samuel's mother to know that God can open any barren woman's womb anytime he chooses. But Zacharias does not know this like he should. And instead, he's asking Gabriel how he can know the truth of what Gabriel has just promised him. And I agree with the commentator Leon Morris when he says that Zacharias' question amounts to a demand for a sign. And Zacharias states the reason he needs some sign or some extra token to help his faith, saying, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, again, Zacharias is making a huge blunder here and asking for some token of assurance, some sign from Gabriel, when in fact, the sign that he's asking for has already been given to him by God. And you say, well, what is that sign? Well, let me answer that question by giving you a word of advice. And this is like a public service announcement to all of you If it ever happens that the angel Gabriel ever comes from the very presence of God and appears to you and promises you that God is going to do something that directly fulfills Scripture, don't look at Gabriel and say, how can I know this for sure? Could you give me a sign? If you do that, you will make Gabriel feel like chopped liver, because Gabriel is the sign. Commenting on this very passage, Matthew Henry is right when he says the appearance of the angel was sign enough, and what an amazing sign it was. This is exactly why Gabriel responds to Zacharias the way he does in verse 19. Zacharias, if you look at his own language, has just kind of introduced himself to the angel saying, I am Mr. Old, and my wife is Mrs. Advanced in years. Look at verse 19. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent, literally I have been apostled, to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Literally, I have been apostled to speak to you and evangelize you with this good news. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I've been sent by him to give you this good news from him. Now imagine if Zacharias responded to Gabriel saying, I'm an old man. My wife has advanced in years. I need some help believing this. And imagine Gabriel heard that and said, Oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. You are old. That's a real obstacle for God. Uh, let me go back to God and make sure that you are really the one that I was supposed to deliver this message to. But that's not how Gabriel responds. Instead, Gabriel says, I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But since Zacharias has essentially asked for a sign or some token of assurance, Gabriel is now going to give him one as a discipline from the Lord. Observe what Gabriel says in verse 20. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. If you look at what Gabriel is saying here, there is... Both chastisement and sweet, delicious mercy in his words. Zacharias will not be able to speak. The reason he will not be able to speak is specifically because he didn't believe what God had spoken to him through Gabriel. But there's mercy here too. Gabriel says, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. In other words, God's promise spoken through Gabriel is still sure. God is still going to show himself true to Gabriel's promise, and even Zacharias' unbelief cannot and will not hinder that. Zacharias will still get to be the father of the forerunner to the Messiah, And experience all of the good that the angel has just spoken to him. As for this sign of discipline that Gabriel imposes on Zacharias, what we do know is that in making Zacharias unable to speak, he is making him deaf also. Because we see in verse 62 of this chapter that people had to communicate to Zacharias in signs just as Zacharias will be communicating in signs in verse 22. So all of this creates a delicious irony for Zacharias. Zacharias wanted some extra sign from Gabriel because he didn't believe the word of God and wasn't content with the sign that Gabriel already was. Fair enough. Zacharias will now spend the next nine months of his life having to give signs to people and have people give signs to him. In other words, his life will be reduced to nothing but signs for the next nine months. So be very careful what you ask the Lord for. Now remember that Zacharias is in the holy place when this exchange is taking place and we were told earlier, that all the people, the multitude, were outside waiting for him. According to the Jewish Talmud, which reflects what was the likely practice even at this time, it was customary for the priest, whose duty it was to offer incense, like Zacharias is doing, uh, and also to pray, to, to leave the altar as quickly as possible, lest unwittingly he commits some act of sin or cause the people to worry. It was just one of the the rules for a priest. When you go into the holy place and you're doing the prayer thing at the altar of incense, don't pray a really long prayer because people outside are going to get worried and wonder if you were smitten dead by the Lord. So they would pray. Uh, They would make it fairly quick, uh, just out of fear that they might sin, Uh, or cause the people anxiety. But Zacharias here is taking much longer than usual, causing a growing sense of worry among the people who are assembled here. Observe what happens starting in verse 21. Uh, The text says, and the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. This is most unusual that there would be this kind of delay But eventually, Zacharias comes out, and it is at this point that the gathered crowd would have expected him to speak a blessing, the blessing of Aaron, from Numbers 6, 24 to 26, over them. But observe what happens in verse 22. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And by the way, the Greek word translated mute here is translated deaf in five other places of the New Testament, indicating once again that Zacharias is both deaf and unable to speak. Seeing that he was unable to speak and seeing his countenance and realizing how long he had been in the holy place, they all concluded that he had seen a vision of some sort, and indeed he had. Well, what does a man do after experiencing such an amazing vision? Well, Zacharias had duties to fulfill through the full week of his priestly service, and he makes sure that he does his part on the priestly team that he is serving on, although he had to do all of that now while getting used to not being able to speak or to hear. Observe what happens in verse 23. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. What happens next is absolutely wonderful and so filled with the grace of God And this brings us to the final development in this true story of the conception of Christ's forerunner, John the Baptist. Number five, God enables Elizabeth to become pregnant with John the Baptist. God enables Elizabeth to become pregnant with John the Baptist. Eventually, Zacharias and Elizabeth, after he returns home, they come together in physical intimacy And observe what happens next in verse 24. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. This would mean that not only has God done a miracle in opening her womb, but he has also done a miracle in Zacharias, enabling him to father this child And wonderfully, after Elizabeth becomes pregnant, she is just rejoicing in God's goodness. Look at the rest of verse 24 and then verse 25. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. We actually don't know for sure why Elizabeth would keep herself in seclusion for the five months that are spoken about here. There was no particular custom that we know of for doing this. What we can be sure of is that no one would have believed her story until her pregnancy really began to show after the five months and beyond From the language Luke uses here, it seems that Elizabeth is spending these five months trying to process the goodness of what has happened to her and is happening to her as this baby is now growing in her womb. In verse 25, she's saying, and I can just see her walking around the house and just saying this to herself, this is the way, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me. In speaking these words, Elizabeth is not merely saying like, oh, God has finally looked with favor upon me. No, she's realizing that God always has had this great miracle in mind with regard to her. And this is why he has dealt with her the way he has all along through the years of her life. Her whole life story is making beautiful sense. Nonetheless, she is unspeakably grateful for this manifestation of favor from God as she now carries this boy in her womb, which leaves her feeling seen by God and loved and favored by him. The disgrace that Elizabeth has endured from people Over many years has been most unfair, but it was real. As she speaks about her disgrace among men. During this day, people viewed childlessness as an automatic sign of God's curse or disfavor upon a person. But God has now removed that unfair stigma from Elizabeth. And she will discover that all her years of barrenness were not wasted either. Through the length of all that time, God was forging her and Zacharias's character in a way that will now be brought to bear on their raising of John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner to the long-awaited Messiah. Elizabeth is in seclusion right now, but she is thinking deeply, she is savoring what God has done, what God is going to do. Soon enough, the world will know what has transpired. The time for the telling will come in due course. In six months, God will send the mother of the Messiah, Mary, to Elizabeth, with whom she would have someone to talk about these things and process these things with. Keep in mind that Zacharias is deaf and mute, so there's not a lot of good conversations that can can happen there. Uh, So she's pondering in her heart, and God will send Mary to her at the six-month point of her pregnancy to process these things with. But for now, Elizabeth is processing this miracle and speaking this way to herself within the walls of her home while, no doubt, often staring in disbelief at her husband who is deaf and mute because he didn't believe this could happen. And this is where we're going to stop for today. And we'll plan to pick up here next Sunday in our Christmas service. As amazing as what this passage tells us has happened, the story is going to get even more amazing in the coming verses and then even beyond that through the rest of the Gospel of Luke. Think about it this way, in our passage today, Zacharias hears the very first promise spoken in the New Testament era and he finds that promise too good to be true. And that promise is merely about the forerunner to the Messiah and didn't contain even 1% of the glories that would unfold over the next 35 years of human history. You know, like a virgin giving birth to the Messiah who is both God and man, the very son of God who will grow up and give sight to the blind and heal lepers and make the deaf able to hear and the lame able to walk again and even raise the dead. And then he himself will die on a cross and through his shed blood provide atonement to sinners through his one sacrifice of himself. And then on the third day, he will be raised from the dead by the power of God and then ascend to the right hand, of God Almighty, and then pour out His Spirit on all who believe in Him and receive the forgiveness of sins through Him. Zacharias is already blowing fuses in his head, trying to wrap his faith around the New Testament's very first promise, when this promise that we have seen today is merely God getting warmed up for far greater works that he will be doing through his son, Jesus Christ. But you and I probably shouldn't be too hard on Zacharias. I think we often have the same struggle that he had, I know I do, and we have less excuse than Zacharias had. Even as Christians, we struggle sometimes to believe in the fullness of the good news of the gospel. We fail to believe the full scope of it as we should, and we have a far greater sign to look at than Zacharias had. The sign Zacharias had to look at was Gabriel, who came from the presence of God. The sign we have to look at is Jesus Christ, who came from the presence of God and is God who died on the cross and was raised from the dead three days later, that's our sign. And yet sometimes we hear God's gospel promises to us through Christ. And and by our actions, we say to God things like, how can I know this for sure? How can I know for sure that you really love me? How can I know for sure that you have freed me from this particular sin? How can I know for sure that I am really forgiven and no longer condemned? How can I know for sure that you will really cause all things in my life to work together for good and for your glory? Or how can I know for sure that you are really for? Me, and will meet my needs. Implied in our doubt is that God maybe hasn't done quite enough to demonstrate that these things are really true. When in fact, God has given us Jesus Christ, who is the greatest sign of all. For he is the God-man who came from the presence of God To die on the cross and reveal God's love to us. So, will you look full into the wonderful face of Jesus this morning and all that He has done for you and believe every promise that God has spoken to you through Christ? Will you renounce the sin of unbelief and believe God's word to you through Christ? I hope you will. And let's pray for each other that we all will. In fact, when we read the story we've looked at today, some of us might feel like God is being a little too hard on Zacharias. Making a good and righteous man deaf and mute for nine months simply because he failed to believe the promise that Gabriel had spoken to him. Seriously? Seriously? Does that seem harsh to you? Speaking on this very passage, R.C. Sproul points out that Gabriel's punishment for Zacharias' unbelief only seems harsh to us because we don't take seriously the sin of unbelief. We should remember that unbelief is the one great sin that damns people to hell. We should also remember that the evilness of unbelief is in direct proportion to the integrity of the God whom we are disbelieving in any given moment. As R.C. Sproul says, unbelief is an accusation against God. It is an unjust slander against the one who is the fountain of all truth. And if we think about those words long enough, we would see how this is really true and how God is actually being quite merciful to Zacharias in our text today. Unbelief either responds to God as if he is a liar or it responds to him as if he just isn't powerful enough to make good on his word to us. Either way, unbelief of God is a sin against him that we should take very seriously and make war, join God in making war against unbelief in our own hearts. When you consider the integrity and the power of, of God, you realize that nothing could ever be more unreasonable, nothing could ever be more irrational than to doubt any word that falls from the lips of God. Think about it this way also, I think God is taking Zacharias's unbelief so seriously, Also because Zacharias has a big job ahead of him in raising his son for the high calling ahead of him. And for Zacharias to be the parent that he needs to be, he's going to need to believe big and he's going to need to act in faith in raising his son to be all that God has destined John to be. And you and I have a calling from God that God has given to us that requires great faith from us as well. It turns out, guys, that there's no time that is a good time to waver in faith. No time is a good time for unbelief. And every moment of your life is the perfect moment for you and for I to wax strong in faith and to believe the promises of God. I think God also handles Zacharias the way he does in this passage in order to serve notice, not just on him, but on us, that far greater things are coming than what Zacharias hears. And men and women will be held to account based on whether they believe or not. And we learn in our passage today that God is quite serious about being believed, especially when he's giving us the glad tidings, the good news about Jesus Christ. So what will it be for you this morning? If you're here today and you have never believed in Jesus Christ and the good news of salvation through him, I pray that God's spirit will prepare your heart to respond to those glad tidings of salvation through Jesus with faith. Don't hear the good news of salvation through Jesus and say, that's just too good to be true. How can I know for sure that all of these things are really true and that God will save me and forgive me of all of my sins and make me his child if I believe in Christ. God has already given you the ultimate sign and his name is Jesus, the crucified and risen and ascended Lord Jesus. Call on his name, believe in him, and you will be saved. And what I'm telling you right now is not too good to be true. God really is that good. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And for speaking to us as you have spoken today, I pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts of faith. I think back on this week and think of many moments where I did not believe as I should have believed, wavering in faith. And the kind of language that we've used, uh, even from R.C. Sproul, actually helps to give me vocabulary in running to you and confessing my sins of unbelief to you. We come to you, Lord, and say we believe, but help our unbelief. There is much that you have put before us as a congregation. Callings, Lord, that we must faithfully discharge. And for us to be faithful in those callings, we must believe. So if you do nothing else for us, Lord, give us hearts of faith, Help us to believe as we ought. And every other good thing we need will flow downstream of that. Because you are worthy of our trust. You are worthy of our faith. And we thank you, Lord, that even though We all have vestiges of unbelief that often still run strong within our being that you are gracious to hear our confession and to forgive. and Just as you were gracious to Zacharias and still fulfilling the goodness of your promise to him. And even your chastisement to him was redemptive in its intent that teaching him and all of us a lesson that redounded to his good and to our good So we thank you, Lord, for being the gracious God that you are. But you are quite serious, Lord, about being believed. And we long to believe as we ought. If there's any in this room, Lord, that have never yet believed in the Lord Jesus, that even where they're seated right now, Lord, that they would turn their eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, And believe in him as their Lord and Savior this morning and call upon his name and experience your eagerness and swiftness and delight to save those who call upon you. I ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said